We're into Mark chapter 14 this morning, and this morning you'll probably notice, if you're observant, that I may follow my notes a little more closely than sometimes, and that is by design. There's certain things I want to make sure I say, and there's some I don't want to say, I don't want to add to, I don't want to just off the top of my head say some things. So if it seems a little more like I'm following my notes again, that is by design. Let's pray together. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ. And it's our desire, Father, to be doers of your word and not hearers only. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Is it possible that God's will may include for you that someone close to you could betray you? How do you respond to that possibility? A family in Vietnam who faithfully worships God, who loves God, faithfully gathers with believers with great fear that they'll be found out they are gathering with believers and the persecution that would come as a result. The brother of the wife starts coming to church and comes for several months and the sister and her husband is hoping that the guy has come to faith. But in three months, the authorities take that sister and her husband and in front of their children kill them because they were betrayed by the wife's brother. As we think about Mark chapter 14, we find that it's a chapter where Christ is basically being abandoned by those close to him as well as others. And in preparation for that, we find that a woman anoints Jesus in verses 1 through 11. There's a prediction during the Lord's Supper that he is going to be abandoned. There's a prediction that Peter is going to deny him three times. The three, Peter, James, and John, are going to abandon him. He says, come and pray with me, watch with me, and they fall asleep. The eleven deny knowing him during his arrest. And then very clearly Peter states, I never knew the man on three different occasions. In the particular verses that we want to consider this morning, in the larger context of verses 12, Through 31, we find that in verses 17 through 21, during the Lord's Supper, the betrayal of Jesus is mentioned. In the context of that betrayal, we have the Last Supper, and then we find the prediction of the disciples being betraying him taking place. With those thoughts in mind, let's read together beginning on verse 12, Mark 14. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice a Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparation for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters. The teacher asked, 
Where is my guest room where I may go eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened. One by one, they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread in the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. All the others said the same. In verse 17, in the evening, or when evening came, the Jewish reckoning began around 6 p.m., you know, for another day beginning. Jesus arrives, and they're sitting around a table. And I can't be dogmatic in this arrangement, but we know that in light of the text, There's something missing there. So just ignore that for the time being. But in light of the text, we know that Judas, or I'm sorry, Peter, Jesus, Judas. And they would have been reclining. They didn't sit. They were reclining. Not Peter, but John could have leaned back and talked to Jesus. Jesus could have leaned back, you know, just turned his head and talked to Judas. And it was this, with that seating arrangement that we find the supper is taking place. Where the rest of them sat, we're not confident of that. But Jesus would have been in charge of the celebration. He would have taken the wine with the first cup as the order of the Passover is listed there. He would have recited the story of the Exodus after the green vegetables and the middle matzah. And he would have told the story of what happened with the Exodus, redemption from Egypt, and led singing of a new song for their redemption in light of 
Psalm 113 through 15. Then he would have directed them to the drinking of the second cup. And after that, he would have blessed the bread and break it and so on. It was during this stage after the second cup that the text says Jesus was troubled in spirit. Why would he be troubled in light of John says that? Because he states, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. That's a horrifying announcement, especially in its final wording, one who is eating with me. An allusion to Psalm 41 and verse 9, where it's recorded that a hit of Hiphophel would have betrayed David when David fled from his son Absalom. Now stop and think about it. Twelve men have spent three years with Jesus. And Jesus is saying, while they're at the table, one of you will betray me. Three years in close proximity to Christ. But yet... One will betray. And we know in light of the text, it was Judas. We know from other scriptures that Judas and his motivation was greed. He was the man with the adding machine mind who could figure out instantly that Mary's ointment could have been sold for over a year's wages. He was the one who was dipping into the account that Jesus and the twelve had. It seems unbelievable that one could be so immersed in fellowship with Jesus, yet living out such great evil. But there's a contemporary ring to that. Chicago Tribune, April 14th, 1986. There's an article about a William Matrix who killed two FBI agents before himself or before he himself was gunned down. Though involved in numerous robberies, he maintained the image of a born-again Christian, a family man who gave testimony in church. Was it even featured in Home Life magazine as an upstanding Christian example? Today, in the modern-day world, we hear about people stealing from sports teams, from a fire department, and so on. So we're not dealing with something new, but it is an inside job. Now, in relation to the seating arrangement, I think it displays Christ's love. Coming from the left, we have Judas, Jesus, John. He had given Judas an honored seat to the left so that Jesus' head was only inches away from Judas's heart. Thus they could converse without everyone else hearing. Lastly, we see that Jesus reached out to Judas to the very end. John, in his account, says that Peter, you know, wanted to know who was going to be betraying Jesus and he motioned to John. Ask him which one he means. 
So what does John do? He leans back and talks to Jesus. Lord, who is it? The seating arrangement made that easy to happen. Jesus answered, it's the one who will, or I give the piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. We know that then he dipped it and he handed it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. What an act of love. In the culture of the day, to take a morsel from the table, dip it in the common dish and offer it to another was a gesture of friendship. For example, when Boaz invited Ruth to fellowship with him, he said, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. Jesus reaching out to Judas, quietly, intimately, he was saying, in effect, here's my friendship and forgiveness. All you have to do is take it, my old friend. Will you? But Judas took the bread without repentance. Satan entered him, as John says, and Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one else understood what was taking place. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast and give it to the poor. It was midnight for Judas' soul. But yet Jesus' offer was genuine. And if Judas had accepted it, Jesus still would have gone to his death. It is possible to be close to someone physically, as Judas was for three years, but yet turn around and betray that individual. In verse 21, it says, The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. I think this verse is one of the more Suggestive verses in Scripture on the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. It also gives us a rare mind into the rare insight into the mind of Christ. The saying represents the mind of Christ as evidenced. Notice what he says. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It's a title, Son of Man, that Jesus uses only himself and not used by the early church. And he says, the Son of Man will go just as it has been written about him. The phrase that it is written carries a further divine purpose of foreordination. There is no place in pre-Christian tradition where the Son of Man is predestined to suffer. The servant of the Lord is to suffer, but not the Son of Man. See, we see divine sovereignty. The Son of Man will just go just as it has been written about him. There's a paradox. The betrayer was one of Jesus' chosen disciples. His betrayal was a grave evil, but yet it was in God's plan. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. 
verses 17 and 18. Acts chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Acts 3, verses 17 and 18. Peter is speaking to the, an onlooking crowd. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how Christ fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. <clears throat> Again, Peter speaking that scripture was being fulfilled. Go over to chapter 4 and verses 27 and 28. <clears throat> the believers in their prayer. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Jesus went according to God's predetermined will. But the betrayer, Judas, was still responsible. Woe to that man who betrays him. Neither Jesus nor Judas is an instrument of blind fate or a pawn of divine strategy. Divine providence neither cancels human freedom nor relieves responsibility for moral choices. God knew in advance what was going to happen. It was stated what was going to happen, but yet Judas made a choice. And we can't always understand how those two flow together, but they do. So while they're eating, going back to Mark chapter 14, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, gave it to his disciples. The words of the institution occur after the Passover meal is in progress, probably between the drinking of the second cup and the third cup of wine. He broke bread, and then he distributed wine. And he would have stated, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the world, who brings forth bread from the earth. According to the Torah, the bread of presentation that was placed in the golden table in the tabernacle Sabbath by Sabbath was called the bread of remembrance. And in verse 22, there are seven transitive Greek verbs. Take, bless, break, give, say, thank. Or take, I'm sorry. Signifies the gracious activity of Christ. Giving himself. And in the text of Mark 14, take it. This is my body. When Jesus says, This is my body, the Aramaic, Jesus' native tongue, behind the body we find the meaning of my person, my whole being, myself. All activity signified by the verbs thus results in the gift of Jesus himself. 
wholly and without reserve in his self-offering for the disciples. They may feed on him whenever they gather for the table of fellowship. And I realize the verb is. This is my body has been a case of much debate, debate and division in the body of Christ. The Aramaic would seem to read this my body with is implied. The same in the Greek. The bread communicates the body. He's talking about himself, his total being, his total character. There were times in the ministry of the prophets of old when words were not adequate to make their point. So they resorted to dramatic symbolic actions. This was expressly true of Ezekiel, when on one occasion he drew a picture of Jerusalem on a clay tablet, erected a miniature enemy camp, and siege works against it to illustrate what was going to happen to Jerusalem. On another occasion, he had his head and beard shaved. That would have been an outrageous act for the Jews. And then divided the hair into three piles. The first he burned, the second he struck with a sword, and the third he scattered to the wind to prophesy the future of Israel. Jeremiah made a yoke. And wore it to prophesy concerning the Babylonian captivity. The prophet Ahijah tore his robe into 12 pieces and gave 10 pieces to Jeroboam to indicate that the kingdom was going to be divided two and 10 tribes. And when it comes to the Passover, Jesus is communicating with a language. He says, Take the bread my body, symbolizing that he is giving himself for the twelve. What did the figure mean? In a word, bread referred to the life of Christ. In the incarnation at Bethlehem, Christ, the bread of life, took on human form. He demonstrated his divine life to all the world by living a sinless life in that body. He bore our sins on the cross while in that body. He triumphed from the grave by bringing the body back to life. And now he lives in that glorified body at the right hand of his Father, where he prays for us. As members of his body, we share that life. That is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians ten sixteen, is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ. Thus, through the bread... We see Jesus' incarnation, death, and resurrection. And it symbolizes our partaking of his life. If we are believers, we're partakers of his life. We're partakers of the life of Christ. There's a union there in light of Philippians chapter 2. In verse 24, Jesus says, This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. I tell you the truth. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom 
of God. What is the meaning of Jesus' pronouncement? This is blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Obviously, the wine represented the body of Christ. Being poured out for many is an allusion to Isaiah 53 and verse 12, which speaks of the Messiah as the one who poured out his life unto death. It was a violent death. Many to those, or many refers to those who would benefit from his atoning death. His blood was the blood of the new covenant. Jesus' blood sealed the covenant whereby men, women, and children would be saved by resting by faith in his atoning blood. With the bones of the Passover on the table, around the table where Jesus and the twelve sat, the aroma of a sacrifice in the air, Jesus confirms a prophetic teaching that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The cup is meant to drive home to us who believe the objective fact that our redemption, as those who participate and share in fellowship in the blood of Christ, is done. Jesus shed his blood. So we have a Passover that is being instituted or going into a new meal because he said, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine on the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You think about this passage, all the activity in this passage, the verbs, results in the fact that Jesus gave himself wholly, completely without reserve for the disciples, for us. He is the bread. His cup provided the blood that is necessary for forgiveness. What is the point of the passage? The wisdom, knowledge, compassion of Jesus stands in sharp contrast to the pride and arrogance of the eleven, especially Peter. In grace, Jesus predicts his victory and restoration of the eleven. He is sovereign. His kingdom will continue. Now think about it. The twelve are there. They're reading. Judas betrays him. He exits. The eleven are told, you know, in verses 27 through 31, that they're going to deny him, deny knowing him. But notice what Jesus says in verse 25. I tell you the truth. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. There's something coming. I am going to be victorious. Judas betray me. Yes. You 11 are going to deny knowing me. Yes. 
but in the future I will drink with you. So a simple question. Have you eaten of Jesus? Have you drank his blood in the sense that have you come, have you come to faith in Christ? Have you come to faith in Christ? If not, why not today? So we wrap it up. Some applications. How do the Roman believers hear this passage? Since Mark was probably written to Roman believers, believers in Rome who were going through persecution, having great difficulty, and Romans were, the Roman government was very cruel. So tomorrow, it is Tom's turn to be thrown to the wild beast with people sitting in the stands just having a great time at this sport. Wednesday night, it'll be Jerry and Bill and Jane's turn to light the garden as a human torch. Persecution. They were suffering like Jesus. They're participating in his sufferings. Paul talks about that. So it gave them hope. In verse 25, I will not drink this or drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. So Tom's going to go to the wild animals and he's thinking, I will remain true. I will remain true because Christ suffered And there's something coming in the future. I will not deny him. I will drink again with Christ in his kingdom. I think they heard it as an encouragement to be faithful. So think about today. As we go through difficulty, be faithful. Someone makes fun of you, be faithful. Someone says the God you serve is not real, be faithful. I think another application is Jesus obeyed his father and expressed love in the midst of betrayal and defection. This was in the Father's will. It was the Father's will that Judas would betray. It was the Father's will that the eleven would deny, but yet they were responsible for the choices they made. You ever stop to think that the Father's will for you may include some difficulty in life, some rejection, some denial? some betrayal, being made fun of because you're a Christian. Still live out your convictions. Earlier, I referred to someone in Vietnam. That's real in many countries where they're dying. We don't experience that today, but we can have strong, steady convictions. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility are part of the will of God. We must accept it, even if we can't explain it. Remember, God is beyond us. In God's divine sovereignty, that included Judas denying, but yet Judas was responsible for his choice. Our walk with the Lord may involve failure and sin, new to being human, but God will continue to work in our lives.
We'll comment more, much more on that when we go to verses 27 through 31 in two weeks. But think about Jesus. He's going to die for men who betray and deny knowing him. That's grace. They blew it, but he says, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. The 11 are going to be there because God in grace continues to work in their life. How many times do we blow it, but God in grace continues to work? I think that comes through in this passage very clearly. Are you committed to following Christ no matter what may come? Are you following the person of Christ? Are you yielded to him? Mary, Noah, Daniel, Job, David, Joseph, just to name a few, are not just Bible stories, but accounts we know are true. For knowing God and trusting him are the things that brought them through. Oh yes, I know they were long ago, but God's still on his throne. He's there for us as he was for them. He won't leave us alone. Knowing him, still trusting him, when all hope seems gone. That's what gives each of us the strength to carry on. Not just Bible heroes. There are people in our midst today. They're going through fiery trials. But God shows them the way. The friend who now has cancer. The one who's lost a son. The one who's blind or in a wheelchair since her life's begun. So many of them have such trust. And peace deep within their hearts while the person sitting next to them may simply fall apart. What is it that gets them through? I'm sure they'll say, in him, they're simply learning to trust. Again, a poem by Jane Killian. As Travis comes, sing several favorites that remind us, encourage us to be faithful.